Recorded live at the renowned Jazz Kitchen in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is Uncle Dan's Story Hour, featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word, and host Will Higgins from the Indie Star. Uncle Dan's Story Hour is brought to you by Beer Brewery, with pints, growlers, and conversation at their tap room just west of Benford Boulevard on 65th Street. And Pages Music, they have been helping people make music since 1871. Thank you. Wow, that's terrific. Thank you. I'm Will Higgins with Indie Star, and tonight on the Story Hour, we talk jazz and Jack Kerouac, and for that matter, anything else cool that might have happened in New York City in the 1950s. Dan lived there and wrote a book about it called New York in the 50s. Our guests are author Barb Shoup, who wrote Looking for Jack Kerouac, about a young man trying to meet the famous writer. It's one of Barb's eight novels. She lives in Indianapolis, where she's been a driving force behind the artistic community known as the Indiana Writers' Center. She'll be on the show's second half. Dan's other guest is the renowned classical composer David Amram, a jazz great, performer, innovator, it was David Amram who, with Kerouac, pioneered the original jazz poetry readings in Greenwich Village in the 50s. It was David Amram who was the, one of the very first people to take a French horn and on it play jazz music. His collaborators over the years, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, Tito Puente, and Willie Nelson. It was here in Indianapolis where he played Farm Maid in 1987 with Willie Nelson at what we used to call the RCA Dome. <laughs> David is old, even by Dan Wakefield standards. <laughs> He's 86, whereas Uncle Dan is, of course, just 85. The two met in 1957 in New York City, and they became friends. And they're still friends. And here they are now. Let's give them a big welcome, Mr. David Amram and Uncle Dan Wakefield. Let me just ask David, I know we promised to talk to you about New York City, but we have with us one of the few people who was, uh, recalls, was at, was at Indiana Avenue in the glory days of the jazz clubs there. David happened to be here as a very young man in 1952. How did that come about? Well, I was given the United States Army draftee fellowship award <laughs> before they had all those prizes for struggling composers and musicians. I was granted being US 52192619 and was stationed at Camp Brickenridge, Kentucky. And that wasn't the place that I had dreamed of going at the age of 21, but I wanted to serve my country and was gracious, grateful to be able to be here, so I went and I met a wonderful trumpet player named Whitey Harris. 
and we used to go to Evansville, a place called the Brown Derby, and jam all night. And Whitey said, look, he said, we, we have a night off. It's great being at the Brown Derby, but I want you to go and hear some of the best jazz players in the world. Maybe you could come and sit in. I said, where are they? And he said, Naptown. I said, where's that? He said, that's what we call Indianapolis. I said, oh, so we went to Indiana Avenue and I heard some of the most extraordinary musicians, and of course, you know all of them, but Freddie Hubbard was not yet playing, but he was influenced by the masters that I heard that night, and so was David Baker, who wrote a fantastic book about that, and also some great classical compositions, and so many other extraordinary musicians, some of whose names I don't remember, some of whom I never met, but all of whom were unfailingly <coughs> gracious to a young 21-year-old struggling musician and embodied that whole spirit of jazz as being community-oriented, something that people shared, something that we served, and something that we loved to do. And today, it's still that way, and now there's a whole new generation of being able to play last night with Sophie Fout, who's here as your musical director of these great young players, just reinforces that wonderful spirit that we're all here for a while, but while we're here, any place and every place we are should be home, and the jazz was about that sharing and caring and community and true family values where we celebrated music and the people who created it and the people who came to listen to it for them to also have a good time. Well, David, I'm really glad you had a good time here. <laughs> but I want to extract you from Kentucky and Indiana. And when I interviewed you back in the 90s for New York in the 50s, one of the things I asked everybody was, do you remember the train you came to uh, New York on? Because I remember from 61st and Winthrop going on the Monon Railroad and going to Chicago and getting the spirit of St. Louis to go to New York, and you told me this. David Amram put pennies on the track of the train whose station was only a mile from the farm he grew up on in Feasterville, Pennsylvania. He dreamed of someday taking his trumpet and going to New York on that train to play in a band. He would realize his dream as a jazz musician composer and conductor, playing with Charlie Mingus and later with his own groups. And then I'm quoting you, it was a silver train called the Crusader, David remembers, and it had a steam engine, and I took it to New York in 1955. So we got you there. Yes, sir. <laughs> and now all these years later, back in Indianapolis in 2017, I had a chance to go to Dan Wakefield Park. <laughs> and if the Crusader could run a line up, a special train up to that park, I'd be on that one too. <laughs> well, I think one of the things you and I both experienced in New York in the 50s 
was the generosity and the spirit of older artists, older musicians and older writers. And I know I had people like James Baldwin, who I met in the White Horse, give me advice and invite me for drinks. And you had uh, Thelonious Monk, I think was the first. Was that right? Yeah, Thelonious Monk and a great conductor named Dimitri Metropolis, who is the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. And instead of sending in an assistant to tell me never to bother him again, he said, oh, he said, I love jazz. He said, I know you know Dizzy Gillespie. I was fascinated with his harmonic innovations. So there were classical giants, there were jazz giants, there was painters like Joan Mitchell and, and de Kooning and Franz Klein, wonderful actors when I did the music for JB in 1958. Christopher Plummer was, was having his first Broadway show, and he also was so gracious. All those people, when they saw a young person struggling, instead of saying, get lost, you can't help out my career, they were nice and encouraging and find, found something nice to say. And even if they just said, look, maybe you could use a haircut or shave, <laughs> or take a bath. At least they were saying something to give you the option of trying to improve yourself. And that was a very beautiful thing, and something that I learned was the most important of how to behave if you were lucky enough to live long enough to become a bona fide older person. Well, and, and I really admired you because you were one of the few artists, musicians, writers, who sort of crossed the lines into knowing people of other arts. I always felt restricted because I was told that writers were supposed to go to the White Horse and painters were supposed to go to the Cedar Bar. So the only time I went to the Cedar Bar was when I was going out with a woman who was a painter. But, <laughs> but you, you bravely crossed the lines. You knew everybody, and you in all the arts. Well, I never felt that there were any lines. I was brought up on a farm where the social center was the gas station where I mowed the lawn. So my orientation there was just to show up, try to have some manners, and pay attention to everybody and see what you could learn from them. So when I came to New York, I said, boy, this is the University of Hangoutology, so I better go everywhere and anything. And still, at, at this very day, that touches my heart, I want to learn and know more about it. And that's something I recommend to everybody, to stay open and not to be afraid that you're going to lose some status and wreck your life if you act human. And that's one of the reasons I love not only coming to see you, Dad, but being back in Indianapolis where you don't need a can opener in order to say hello. Uh, well, you, you mentioned a phrase I really admire of yours, and I, I first heard it from you, the University of Hangoutology, where you said you were a student. I believe you're a professor of that university. <laughs> And it reminded me that here we have a favorite uh, place, a favorite uh, lunch spot called Taste of Havana Restaurant. And in there, they don't allow Wi-Fi, 
and they have a sign that says, pretend it's 1994, call your mother. <laughs> and I wanted to add a thing that said, pretend it's, it's 1954, write your mother a letter. <laughs> And I think people would like to know also uh, about, well, what Thelonious Monk taught you and, and what it was like playing with him. He was one of the giants. Well, he always said, as Lester Young did and so many other people, tell your story. He said, someday over in Europe and Asia, they're going to be taking our music and instead of copying us, they're gonna make their own jazz. And he said, that's a good thing. And I played him something that I had written for a production of a play at Howard University. I lived next door to the director when I was in Washington, D.C. And he said, I like that. He said, you should make a classical piece out of that. And when I was in Manhattan School of the Music, I was told, of course, that if you didn't write 12-tone music or whatever was supposed to be fashionable that week, you were a total nincompoop loser and should give up and, and, and go to dental school. So I didn't get much support for trying to find out what I might be able to do better than I wanted to do. And it was Thelonious Monk who said, work on your piano, he said, and, and write that. And I found out that not only Dimitri Metropolis loved classical music and jazz, but all the jazz giants loved all musics, including the jazz players that came before them and the composers who came before Bach, the great pre-Bach, pre-Baroque period composers. And there was this sense of music being the star and all elements of music that come from the heart, including the world's mu folkloric music, was important and that improvising and composing were two opposite sides of the coin. So I'm writing a concerto now for violin, cello, and orchestra that's going to get played in, in 2018. The second movement is called Praise and Lady Day. That was uh, Lester Young and Billie Holiday. But I know that I can't write what they played because that's already perfect. But my instincts from being with Monk, who always said, get the right notes, even if you have to spend a month getting that right chord, you were looking for the perfect notes for the choice notes. And that element is what makes all music that survives beautiful because every note is a winner and everything you're doing tells a story and everything touches your heart. So in a certain sense, jazz did and still does bring everybody back to the reality of what it's all about and that improvising and formally writing it down are opposite sides of the same coin. And I, 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 I excuse me, I, I want to mention so we don't forget this, that David, though we're billing him as a jazz musician, because that's the sexiest, he is also a composer. This guy has composed a flute concerto for James Galway. He's conducted the Philadelphia Symphony. He wrote the music, musical scores for the first Manchurian Candidate movie and for the movie of Splendor and the Grass. I think he has done everything 
there that a person can do in the field of music. I wanted to ask you uh, one of your many job opportunities that I found any musician would envy. You were invited once to uh, go on the road with Charlie Mingus. And I, I can't remember, he was going to give you 125 a week, and, but you were going to the Manhattan School of Music? Right. You have a fantastic memory. But, yeah, I was at Birdland. I've been there two weeks, and Leonard Feather took me to hear Bud Powell, and Charlie Mingus came over to the table, and, and Leonard Feather, who's a wonderful jazz critic and, a, and loved the music and played piano, said, this Dave Amram, he just got out of the Army. He's moved to New York. He's on the GI Bill, studying composition, and he's a jazz French horn player because he can play Mozart and all that stuff, and he can improvise. Mingus gave me a long look, and he said, will you go on the road with me for $125 a week? If I said yes, he probably would have walked away, but I said, I can't. I said, I'm here at Manhattan School of Music, and I'm studying composition. And he said, you'll learn more with me than you ever will in music school. So I finished my almost finished a year of Manhattan School of Music, but by that time I was playing with so many people up to five in the morning, and then I would get up at seven in the morning and, and go to school, and then have a little day job in the afternoon. So by the time spring came around to 56, I was starting to get a little fatigued, <laughs> but I learned so much from Mingus that I still treasure every second of that, and I learned a lot from Manhattan School of Music, too. And most important, it made me realize that it's important to be studious and to study and to practice and to try to get better. And Mingus was always about that. He would take me over to his house, and he was a fantastic <clears throat> piano player, and give me a crash course in how certain people would play a song, and then here's what Art Tatum did, and here's what Dizzy Gillespie did, and here's what he did, and here's what Rachmaninoff would have done if he'd written the song I wanted to improvise. And all these people were so scholarly in the best sense and so sharing that everything to me became an education. So I felt at home anywhere because I knew I was starting from the bottom and had no place to go but up. So therefore, when you realize that, then you can be comfortable and studious and respectful wherever you go. And it's amazing how much you can learn with the tacit understanding that someday, if you're lucky, you're supposed to share that gift that's bequeathed upon you with others. Well, I was lucky enough to hear Mingus at the famous jazz place in the Bowery, the Five Spot, where you played too. And one of the things that especially uh, impressed me about Mingus, not only his music, when he was playing at the Five Spot, he used, Nat Hentoff told me this, that that Mingus told his musicians, listen, this may be a raggedy-ass place, but when you're playing with me, you play like it's Carnegie Hall. And he expected the audience to respect him in the same way, and he was famous for, if people were talking, he would stop. He would wait till they shut we'll up. We'll stop, too. And sometimes he would, he would usher them out. Well, David, you have always been an unpaid community organizer. You know, they talk about Obama having been a community organizer. 
he at least got paid for it. You, you just did it. And, uh, and one of the great uh, results of your organizing that I, I always got a kick out of, you and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, uh, and you wrote the music and were in it. You created a movie. You did a home movie. Can you tell us about that? Well, that was, that was a film uh, called Pull My Daisy, which was a bunch of us saying, well, we hope someday our children and grandchildren would see that we weren't just a bunch of surly, untalented, winologists, blameologists, nasty, resentful, self-hating, and people-loathing beach, beach nicks of the beach generation. But with all respect to that morbid branding and all the t-shirts they might have sold, there was something much more than that. And Pull My Daisy, which you wrote the song, right? Yeah, I wrote the, the, the lyrics were by Neil Cassidy, Allen Ginsberg, and Jack Kerouac, not exactly the hit songwriters. And I also, I also, I used chamber music because Jack loved classical music and I used jazz, and all of us, I was cast as Mez McGillicuddy, the deranged French hornist. I said, Jack, what's that? He said, just be you. That was my introduction to the Stanislavski technique, although I didn't know it. <laughs> Larry Rivers, who was a real good painter, and a very loud saxophone player, that if he had ever practiced for three weeks, very creative guy, but he never practiced, so it was hard to pick it up. He, he became the Neil Cassidy character, but because of the fact that he played the saxophone, Jack said, hey, play the saxophone too. So the saxophone playing was so scary in the movie, we got Sahib Shahab to come, who did it in one take, and it was gorgeous. So when Larry saw the film, I said, Larry, I know our acting was non-existent, but how do you like the way that saxophone sounded? He said, man, I never sounded better. Well, here is what is truly amazing. To replicate that sax saxophone sound, we have our own great saxophonist, Sophie Fought, who has always brought soul to the Uncle Dan show. <laughs> and she is going to play the music you wrote, Pull My Daisy. Sophie? Okay. Oh. I didn't realize David's going to play, too, on the piano. <clears throat> For those of you who came last night, I'll skip the 15-minute introduction followed, <laughs> followed by the Dostoevsky-in-length scat intro, and we'll just go right into the song. I just want to say, for the record, that Sophie inspired not only my son, who's 33 and a heck of a good musician, but all of us to try to do better and as an ambassador for a whole new generation of music to show that if it's beautiful and is for real, that means it's gonna stay that way. Doors are open. Hop my hot 
for coconuts All my eggs are broken Hop my heart song, harp my life The roofs hold me steady Hip my angel, harp my light Lay it on the needy Hop my heart song, harp my life The roofs hold me steady Hip my angel, harp my light Lay it on the needy Well, if Jack and Neil and Alan knew that we were here in Indianapolis today And they got to hear Sophie Fort play a saxophone They would also be blown away So I've got a treat for all of you The singing part of the song is through Since Sophie's choice is our choice too Let's hear Sophie make you goo Sophie tell the story better than anyone can and since we're here this afternoon also celebrating our Uncle Dan so for all you people who are home you never have to feel alone if you don't take up the saxophone at least you know where creativity is going cause if it's art it means that it comes right from the heart I'm only gonna end the song with the lyrics now that Neil and Alan and Jack wrote. Pull my daisy, tip my cup. All my doors are open. Hop my heart for coconuts. All my eggs are broken. Hop my heart, song, harp my light. So roofs hold me steady. Hip my angel, harp my light. Lay it on the needy Hop my heart song, harp my life Sarah's hold me steady And remember if you like this song and you like this radio show as well Then maybe you can get your kids to take up the saxophone or something so, so they can have a story for their kids to tell And if you feel blue on a warm Indiana evening And you find it's getting dark 
And you want to go feed some pigeons or write a novel or write a poem or propose someone to get married to or just to hear the sound of an early morning lark. Well, if you can't pull a daisy to find, just take a trip and go out to Dan Wakefield Park. <laughs> Among uh, David's many accomplishments, even aside from mu music, he has written books. One of his books is called Collaborating with Kerouac. So, David, I thought if you could tell us a little bit about how you met and first began collaborating with Kerouac. Well, I'll make it very brief because I want to hear... Barbara Shoup, who wrote a wonderful book about her feelings about Kerouac. And the way Jack and I began, I was at a bring your own bottle party. At, before they called it Soho, it didn't really have much of a name. It was south of most of Greenwich Village. And these little factories were turned into illegal places where painters could have low rent a lot of space, good light, put in a hot plate and live there illegally. And if they couldn't get a big art show with one of the major galleries, they could have their own art show by having a bring your own bottle party, BYOB, and putting their paintings about 10 feet on the wall so no one would put a cigarette butt or pour a drink on them when we were partying, which was the reason why we were all there. So at one of those parties, I had my instruments, and the guy dressed up like a French Canadian boucheron, as a lumberjack from the 19th century, black and red check jacket, said, play with me. And he handed me a piece of paper. Then he took the paper back before I could see what it was, and I started playing, and I just felt this connection that you do sometimes was really wonderful. Then he ran off and chased somebody to go dancing with them and I was running off and we kept bumping into each other and doing that. And gradually, he told me his name was Jack and he was a writer that couldn't get anything published. And I told him I was a classical composer that couldn't get anything published and played. And uh, we were both in the same boat, so to speak. And I found out that he spoke French at home, which I did too, and I, he loved jazz and he loved Bach. And he was just a wonderful, warm people person. So finally, we gave the first, after doing those kind of readings at people's parties until they asked us to knock it off, or at various hamburger joints until we were requested to leave, or park benches, or any place, Two other poets, Howard Hart and Philip Lamantia, said, let's have a music poetry, poetry music night. So we had a first of a series of what they called jazz poetry readings, first at the Brada Art Gallery in the fall of 1957, and then two at the Circle and the Square Theater, one at Brooklyn College. Then jazz poetry became an official fashionable entertainment of by that time, since On the Road had been published, 
what was supposed to be representative of the beat generation. <laughs> Jack couldn't stand that, as you heard from what he wrote that Dan read last night. And uh, we stopped doing it, and then people who had never written a poem and bands who'd never met a writer would try to collectively blast each other off the stage, and after about two months, jazz poetry went to where all fashionable things go, which was the nearest dumpster. And fortunately, Michael McClure, who was a good friend of so many of those writers, uh, got together and started writing songs, and he was a friend of wonderful pianist Morrison, who, who was with Jim, who was with the Doors, and they took it up another notch of what we'd started doing. And then the Lost Poets came in, and they really took it up a notch. And today they have hip hoppers and rappers and freestylers who were fantastic. So we were just part of what, what Jack and I called the first jazz poets of the 50s, which went back to Homer when he did the Iliad and the Odyssey and someone else wrote it down while a poor guy on the boat was playing the leader for 14 hours. So music and poetry have been together for a long time, and we were just part of, of that, and it was really fun doing it. And now a whole lot of young people are being creative today. We hope we gave a little spark towards that. Well, I just want one thing before asking Barbara what prompted her book, but uh, I know I... Uh, for a long time, I, I wasn't an admirer of On the Road. And, and over the years, I began to see that On the Road had done wonderful things for many people, that it had, it had given freedom to people. I, I have a good friend, in fact, who's from Crawfordsville, although I knew him in New York 20 years before I knew that, before he revealed that. But he's uh, <laughs> an editor at The Nation magazine, and he told me once that uh, he dropped out of Yale Law School and came to New York to be a writer because he read On the Road. And I met a chef in Boston who was from England. And I said, what brought you here? And she said, I read On the Road, and I want to come to America and drive across it. So it's really, and it continues to have an effect on young people, a very liberating effect. So maybe that's why you decided to write it, or well, not. Or not. Yeah. It, it was a funny story, really. It was an idea that a friend of mine had. And when he told it to me, you know, kid falls in love with On the Road, decides he wants to go and find Jack Kerouac, and he finds him, and he's a disappointment. And I said, that's a great idea. If you ever decide not to use it, could I have it? And I was kind of joking. And a couple of years later, he said, yeah, I'm not going to use that. So if you want it, you can have it. And I, I said, great, that's cool. Um, and then I proceeded to, to play around with it. Um, I, my New York story is that when I was a, a junior in high school, if you can imagine doing this now, it's so bizarre. Um, I grew up in Hammond, Indiana, and there were five high schools. And they took an entire train load of kids on, on the Monon train to New York City. And there were 200 of us, 
<laughs> and it was like heaven. It was the most amazing thing. And so we were mostly doing these sort of lockstep tours, but we had a free evening. So we weren't really supposed to go to Greenwich Village, but we did. And I remember coming up out of that subway and it was like, whoa, this is someplace I want to be. And I was fascinated by folk music and I was, I was really, I just loved the black turtlenecks to tell you the truth. I love, <laughs> I love that whole beatnik thing. I thought it was so cool and it made a big impression on me as, as a young person. So, you know, I always remembered that, that night in New York. And even now when I go to New York, I have a friend who lives in the West Village and I feel there's a certain kind of feeling of home for me there. I, I don't know why, but I have an affinity for it. But um, I was not exactly what you would call a big fan of Jack Kerouac. I was interested. It's not the kind of writing that I do. But to make a long story short, what was fascinating to me was to get beyond the brand of Kerouac or the, the caricature, really, um, that, that he had to live with after he wrote On the Road and it became so popular. And I, was, I had you know, my idea of who a person like Jack Kerouac would be based on what you were saying, people ran away. You know, they read that book and they were changed and they went away. Um, and and I, it wasn't like that for me. I got really interested in him just as a human being. And the more research I did to try to make that book believable and try to figure out, you know, what could happen to my character who had my experience. I gave him the experience. This book is set in 1964, and was reviewed as a very as a, a, a historical novel, which I thought was pretty amusing, since I thought, I'm now this old that I'm writing about my own time, and it's called a historical novel. Well, okay, what are, you, <laughs> what are you supposed to do with that? But anyway, it was, it was all right. But I, I became fascinated by what a complex person he was, and he was so unlike what everybody thinks that he was. So David, does this all uh, connect with your image of Jack, your friendship with him? Yeah, definitely. In 1960, which I wrote about in an offbeat collaborating with Kerouac, he said, come on over, man. He was with Dodie Muller, a wonderful painter that he was almost married. And he had stopped drinking. He was kind of shaking, but he was trying to kick that alcohol. and. He said, I want to show you something. And he went, he opened up a drawer in, in Dodie's room where he was saying, and I didn't, and, and he took out this, I thought, this is a weird manuscript. I'd never, he was a very impeccable writer. This was, looked like it was printed, like a New York Times printed, but it was written by hand. It was the baseball games. He had all these baseball games. One of the leagues, I remember, was Pawtucket, which is, yeah, which is yeah. a, 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 a kind of a little place close to, to the famous college in Rhode Island, a suburb. And years later, when, when the Bird Collection bought the Kerouac archive, the man called me up and said, we have this amazing thing. He said, you might be interested in this baseball league. I said, I remember when Jack showed that to me. And I said, wasn't there a team called Pawtucket? He said, how could you remember that? I said, how could I forget it? Who would ever think? And he, and he also had one about football leagues and horse racing. And these were things that he did himself that he really appreciated. And super fast, when I was here, when, they, when James Yersay invited me to come to read, he was going to read Kerouac. 
for the when the when the NFL people all came here the year that Peyton Manning retired, he couldn't read it at the last minute because he had so much to deal with. And he said, "I'm going to get our football announcer." I said, "Well, Jack would love that because he was such a football <laughs> fan." So the football announcer, a wonderful guy, he said, "David, this is a big thrill." He said, "Let's try to do it. I want to see how you like it, man." So. I could see he was definitely a sports announcer, so he read the beautiful part at the end of all the, so in America when the sun goes down? I said, how am I doing? I said, well, if you could do it a little slower. <laughs> so in America when the sun goes down, and paint a picture, that's what Jack was doing, and then everybody could make the, the movie in their own mind, and he read it, and it was beautiful. But he loved football, and he loved baseball, and he was a champion athlete. As a, as a football player, that's why he got a scholarship to Horace Mann, which gave him a scholarship to Columbia University. Then when he broke his leg the third week in practice, that was the end of his football career. Well, there, there's another story I heard at Columbia of the end of his football career. That I heard that after he broke his leg, the famous coach, Lou Little, still was interested in him coming back. But in the meantime, Kerouac had taken a course from a great professor at Columbia, a great poet, Mark Van Doren. And Mark Van Doren taught a course in Shakespeare. And Kerouac told some other students that after taking Van Doren's course in Shakespeare, he was no longer interested in playing football or in spending his time that way. So that was another of the, the legends, anyway, about him. And there is a, a wonderful book uh, by a mutual friend of, of me and David named Helen Weaver. And she wrote a book. She had been Kerouac's girlfriend for a while. And she wrote a book called The Awakener, uh, <laughs> a memoir of Kerouac in the 50s. And it's really good. It's an excellent memoir and very insightful about Jack. And I have to add that sometime after she knew Jack, I was her boyfriend. <laughs> And the whole point was, compared to Jack, I represented stability. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> That's the only time in my life I've been looked upon as a stable person. But anyway, that, But uh, you had many good times with him and many creative times. Yeah. I mean, the, from, from reading your book, Creating with Kerouac, making that movie, Pull My Daisy, was a total party the whole time. Yeah, that, that was, uh, I've just been asked by Estelle Parsons to be an actor's studio production of Uncle Vanya and to play a character in it. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not an actor. I proved that with my non-performance and Pull My Daisy. And instead of in documentary films, I just try to be myself, which is bad enough. She said, no, no, she said, Pull My Daisy. I know Kerouac said, just be you. 
And he said, that's what you're supposed to do in, in acting. So what Alfred Leslie, who was a wonderful painter, we could use his studio. And so we had his studio and we put washers in the, in the fuse box so it could be bright enough. And he was very careful to constantly have his paintings in every single scene so he could sell, hopefully sell a painting or two. And Robert Frank, who's a great photographer, had never made a movie. He had a wooden tripod with the camera on it. And our job, since it was a silent movie, was to see if we could make him laugh so hard that he would shake the camera. And he would have tears rolling down his cheeks. But he managed to somehow fill this. And after about 50 hours of wrecking Jack's idea of what might have been a fairly interesting film, a friend cut it down to 29 minutes. And Jack came in to do the spontaneous narration. And while he was watching the massacre of his movie, he made up this amazing narration that was so terrific that you thought that was what the movie was supposed to be about. But it was really fun, and Jack was a very good sport. But I think what was interesting about the film was that Seinfeld, the creators of that, said, we decided to make a TV show about nothing because Pull My Daisy was a film about nothing. It really was. And I, the, 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 the wonderful thing about the movie, really, and I think uh, this really impressed me about Jack, that he went in and he looked at this footage of these guys just falling around and they, uh, and he made a beautiful narration yeah. for that and his voice is mm. beautiful it's worth it to hear the is that available anymore finally well since there's no rushes we all know 58 years after we did it uh, there's finally what Columbia Records wanted to do in 1959 They're, they put out a whole soundtrack box set and that is just Jack's voice and my music. And the, without seeing our bad acting, not that I'm, I'm a judgmental or anything, but without seeing all of us clowning around, you can actually hear Jack's voice and some of the nice music. And it actually is very beautiful. And it's like what it was like to hang out with him because he did the whole thing on the spot. And it really sounds like him rather than an actor portraying the voice of the beat generation, you dig what I'm saying? The thing that really impressed me about his narration, what I read in your book is that that was only the second take. He yeah. did it once, yeah. and they said, well, he did it once more, and they wanted him to do it. He said, no, that's it. And, and it's really beautiful. And it reminded me, in fact, in the documentary of New York in the 50s, Helen Weaver is interviewed and she talks about the beat philosophy and, and I remember seeing her say this, she said their, their feeling, Jack's feeling was like the Zen feeling, first stroke, best stroke. Mm. And that was the idea and that was, that was what he did. This narration just came out of his head. It was really amazing. Well, spontaneity is the, is the key to it all. And Jack also did a lot of editing in his head, just like Mozart did. When he wrote all that stuff out, he already had it composed. And when Jack was a f 
tremendously fast typist, but he already had the book out on the road, of course, was the 10th version, and the Berg Library has all of their nine versions. And he didn't take Benzedrine and get stoned out of his head to write it. He drank coffee and he sat there typing as fast as he could because he already had the book in his mind. And then, of course, it was edited by Malcolm Cowley. And then he finally gave up and said, okay, take it. And, and now the scroll version came out that's kind of interesting. But, and that was bought by Indianapolis's own James Earsay, bless his heart, and instead of putting it in a vault for 50 years so he could sell it for eight times more than it was worth, uh, bless him, he has it out on tour. Jim Canary, who the great conservator who, who lives in Bloomington, is in charge of the scroll to see that it doesn't disintegrate, and it's been shown all over the world. It's now overseas somewhere. And when you see that, it gives anybody, including even some of us older folks, the idea that one person can sit with the typewriter or a computer or anything or a pen and write something and, and just sit in a room and do something that can actually make the world a more interesting place. So it's a great instigator for creativity. And, so, and what Allen Ginsberg did was write a whole poem for it. And uh, Ginsberg... I, I must say, I over the years, I became more and more impressed with his poetry. And I just wanted to say, if you look at the book Howl, the dedication is to Jack Kerouac and says in there whose five novels are published in heaven. That means they had never been published yet. <laughs> that they, it wasn't until after the road on the road came out after that got published. But anyway, back to Ginsburg's wonderful poetry. One of the great poems of his is called Sunflower Sutra, and one of our Indianapolis and world great writers, Susan Neville, is going to read that. And uh, are you going to give her some accompaniment yes. on the piano? Sunflower Sutra by Allen Ginsberg. I walked on the banks of the tin can banana dock and sat down under the huge shade of a southern Pacific locomotive to look at the sunset over the box house hills and cry. Jack Kerouac sat beside me on a busted rusty iron pole, companion. We thought the same thoughts of the soul, bleak and blue and sad-eyed, surrounded by the gnarled steel roots of trees of machinery. The only water in the river mirrored the red sky, sun sank on top of final Frisco peaks, no fish in that stream, no hermit in those mounts, just ourselves roomy-eyed and hungover, like old bums on the riverbank, tired and wily. Look at the sunflower, he said. There was a dead gray shadow against the sky, big as a man sitting dry on top of a pile of ancient sawdust. I rushed up and chanted. It was my first sunflower, memories of Blake, my visions, Harlem and hells of the eastern rivers, bridges, clanking Joe's, greasy sandwiches, dead buried bee carriages, 
black treadless tires, forgotten and unretreaded. The poem of the riverbank, condoms and pots, steel knives, nothing stainless, only the dank muck and the razor sharp artifacts passing into the past. And the gray sunflower, poised against the sunset, crackly, bleak, and dusty with the smut and smog and smoke of olden locomotives in its eye. Corolla of bleary spikes pushed down and broken like a battered crown, seeds fallen out of its face, soon to be toothless mouth of sunny air. Sunrise obliterated on its hairy head like a dried wire spider web. Leaves stuck out like arms out of the stem. Gestures from the sawdust root broke pieces of plaster fallen out of the black twigs. A dead fly in its ear. Unholy battered old thing you were. Oh sunflower, oh my soul, I loved you then. The grime was no man's grime, but death and human locomotives. All that dress of dust, that veil of darkened railroad skin, that smog of cheek, that eyelid of black misery, that sooty hand or phallus, a protuberance of artificial worse than dirt, industrial, modern, all that civilization spotting your crazy golden crown and those blear thoughts of death and dusty loveless eyes and ends and withered roots below in the home pile of sand and sawdust, rubber dollar bills, skein of machinery, the guts and innards of the weeping, coughing car, the empty, lonely tin cans with their rusty tongues lack. What more could I name the smoked ashes of some cocked cigar, the cunts of wheelbarrows and the milky breasts of cars, worn out asses of our chairs and sphincters of dynamos, all these entangled in your mummied roots, and you there standing before me in the sunset, all your glory in your form, a perfect beauty of a sunflower, perfect, excellent, lovely sunflower existence, a sweet natural eye to the new hip moon, woke up alive and excited, grasping in the sunset shadow sunrise, golden monthly breeze. How many flies buzzed round you, innocent of your grime, while you cursed the heavens of the railroad and your flower soul? Poor dead flower, when did you forget you were a flower? When did you look at your skin and decide you were an impotent, dirty old locomotive, the ghost of a locomotive, the specter and shade of a once powerful, mad American locomotive? You were never no locomotive sunflower. You were a sunflower. And you, you locomotive, you are a locomotive, forget me not. So, I grabbed up the skeleton thick sunflower and stuck it at my side like a scepter and deliver my sermon to my soul and Jack's soul too. And anyone who listen, we're not our skin of grime. We're not dread, bleak, dusty images, locomotives. We're golden sunflowers inside. 
blessed by our own seed and hairy, naked accomplishment bodies growing into mad, black, formal sunflowers in the sunset, spied on by our own eyes under the shadow of the mad locomotive riverbank sunset, frisky, hilly, tin can evening sit-down vision. Sophie has a closing song. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was recorded live at the renowned Jazz Kitchen in Indianapolis, Indiana. For tickets and information on future Story Hour events, visit redkeytavern.com. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was made possible in part by the amazing Beer Brewery, Pages Music, and faithful listeners like you. Special thanks to writer Uncle Dan Wakefield, host Will Higgins from the Indie Star, the very talented David Amram from New York City, guest author Barb Shoup, writer Susan Neville for the amazing reading, 
creative consultant and senior lecturer at Indiana University and writer, producers Michael Therowechter and Pat Chastain, and many thanks to the Jazz Kitchen owner, David Ali, and Roz, Frank, Lori, and the great staff at the renowned Jazz Kitchen. Our amazing recording engineer for this episode was the masterful Mike Helpern. Our graphic artist is the very talented Sarah Bushman. Our production manager is the very skilled Matt Pelzer. How's that new baby, Matt? The WFYI program director is the wonderful Roxana Caldwell. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was created by Dan Wakefield and Michael Therwechter. <laughs>